Find Genesis 37. Genesis 37. Human suffering and God's providence. Human suffering and God's providence. Genesis 37. Got it? Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. 
As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Your translation may say Midianites. The Midianites were simply a subset of the Ishmaelites. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Human suffering and God's providence. Folks, I want you to recall David's words in Psalm 139. You remember that psalm? David says there, You've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He goes on to say, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to pass. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down first of all tonight the God who is there. The God who is there. You know, as we think about God's providence, I want you to listen how theologian Wayne Grudem describes providence. He says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He, first of all, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which He created them. 
Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And thirdly, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. In Hebrews 1.3, the Bible says that Christ is upholding the universe by His Word of power. And the Greek word upholding there refers to He's intimately involved and He's carrying every single aspect of the universe along. Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ... All things hold together. Listen to Psalm 104. 104 verses 27 to 29 says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And then over in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, and verse 4 says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. And then over in verse 33 of that same chapter, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And then you go to Job. In the book of Job, Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12, verse 23. Job says he makes nations great, and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. And then just one more over in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Listen to what God tells Jeremiah there. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Folks, is God in control? Is He providentially overlooking everything and directing everything? He is. And you know what? That means that you and I do not have to worry that history is spinning out of control with no purpose in the chaos. As children of God, we can take great comfort in the fact that God is a sovereign God, a providential God. And I'm sure as you look back on your own life, I trust that you can see times that you understand now that God was very much with you. And things were not a coincidence. Things were not an accident. As you look back on your life now, you can see God's thumbprints all over your life's circumstances. And you know now that even when you felt alone, you were not alone. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus said, The hairs on your head are numbered. All the hairs on your head are numbered. Larry's patting his head. <laughs> Jesus said, A sparrow doesn't fall into the bosom of the earth, but what God doesn't know about it. And again, David in Psalm 139, all of, your, all of your days are numbered before you live even one of them. The Bible states that Judas did what he did because he had been raised up to do that. And at the same time, he was accountable for what he did. It's a mystery how God balances our will and choices against His sovereignty but both are true. The Bible proclaims both. As Martin Luther said, man has free will, but we must remember that since the fall of man, since the fall in Genesis 3, man's will is in bondage to sin. In other words, man exercises his will, but even that is tainted and stained by sin and sin's consequences. And to deny that would be to deny Scripture itself. How about bad things? Is God in control? Yes. Case in point would be who in the Bible? Job. Job, exactly. God's not the author of sin and evil, but He allows it. God allowed Satan, in the case of Job, to use other people the, the tribes, the tribal bandits, the small bands of armies that came against some of Job's children, God allowed Satan to use that. The great storm that killed some of them, God allowed Satan to, to raise up natural disasters to do that. And then he allowed Satan to attack Job's flesh and the, the boils and the pain. God allowed all of that. God allowed Satan to do that. But God was in control. Everything that Satan did, God had Satan on a leash. Because God would say that you can do this to him, but you cannot do this, such as you can't take his life. Now, we may ask why God allows it. God has His reasons. We may not understand some of those to eternity. And we need to also realize the Bible never says that Christians are spared hardship. We're never spared trials. James 1, verse 2 and following says that, that we're to consider it all joy when we uh, fall into trials, various trials of different sorts, knowing that through those trials, God works patience and endurance and fortitude. And finally, James talks about how God is building character through those trials. Sometimes God uses trials to build character in us. And I'm under the opinion that that's what was going on in Joseph's trials because Joseph was spoiled and petted. God probably used 
that prison time, not probably, God did use that prison time to grow him because everything had always gone Joseph's way. And God had a big assignment planned for Joseph. But before that big assignment, before he could do that, God had to first of all grow his character and get his character ready for it. Folks, it's critical to see that Joseph was never out of God's care. Over and over again, we're told that God was with Joseph, that God was giving him favor in the eyes of those who had been appointed over him, and that God blessed Joseph and everything Joseph did, and God is the one who gave him success. And so God was getting Joseph exactly where he needed him, and God was using hardship to do it. Now, I hope that this will shatter any false belief you may have that if you are truly saved, then you won't ever experience sickness or suffering. That's a brand of theology that goes around in certain circles of Christianity and it is simply not true. It is not biblical. I can remember when Ivadi and I were in Cameroon. One of the young men there felt this way and when we talked about Job, he said, well, Job got what he deserved. He was a sinner. And I pointed out to him, I said, well... In Job chapter 1, God told Satan that Job was a righteous man. That was God's testimony about Job, that Job was a righteous man. And I also pointed out that most of the characters in the Bible that we admire the most suffered. I mean, we could talk about Daniel, for example. Look at the early apostles, how they suffered and died. You think also about the martyrs in the book of Revelation. They're crying out to God. They're martyrs who have stood strong in the faith. And they didn't cave. They didn't compromise. They remained pure. And they were put to death because of their faith in Jesus. And they're crying out under the altar, How long, Lord, before you avenge our blood? So I want you to see that sickness, trials, hardships are certainly not evidence in and of themselves that God is not with you. Right? God's with you in all of that. God, God even allows it for a reason, reasons that are known to Him. But He's always there. The God who is there. Secondly, I want you to see the trials that come our way. Related to that, the trials that come our way. Sometimes the trials that come on us are self-imposed. Not always, but certainly sometimes. And that does seem to be the case with Joseph. In fact, Jacob and Joseph set themselves up. They really set up the scenario for what happens to Joseph. Again, God's directing it, 
But Jacob and Joseph kind of set the whole thing up. Think about what all they did. Look back beginning at, at, the, at verse 2 in chapter 37. In verses 2 and 3. What do we find out at the end of verse 2 about Joseph? He's a tattletale. He's a tattletale. Nobody likes a tattletale. He's only 17. Sure. But still, he's a tattletale against his brothers, and his brothers are who attacked him. So, should have been out watching the sheep. have been out watching the sheep. Also, what else? What Jacob do? Jacob loved Joseph more. It's certainly a testimony to parents to beware of showing favoritism among your kids. Nobody likes to be on the short end of the stick. Something else we find that the brothers resented Joseph over. He was the son of Rachel, their dad's favorite wife. So here's the favorite son of their dad's favorite wife. Joseph is the son of Jacob's old age. And Joseph made a, uh, Jacob made a special gift for Joseph that he didn't make for his other sons. Now folks, church tradition and Hollywood with the things like Joseph and the coat of many colors has, has tainted this to probably we can't think anything else about this robe other than it being a robe of many colors. And it may have been that. But the Hebrew doesn't state that. Again, it might have been that, but the Hebrew states that it was a long-sleeved robe that was ornate. What does that mean? Was it of many colors? Maybe, maybe not. But it was a long-sleeved robe. The robe of management, not the robe of a worker. I've seen some uh, interpretations of that that uh, the stitching could have been a lot more ornate, even if it was just a one color robe. Sure. You could really tell the difference there. It sure. wasn't utilitarian. Sure. It was decorative. And, and that's why I say, you know, Hollywood and anybody who gets a hold of this story, it's, they probably made it where we'll never think of it being anything other than a robe of many colors. But that is not what the Hebrew says. It might have been, but it might have just been that it was a long sleeve robe with ornate stitching or some type of ornate symbols on it that set him apart as he wasn't supposed to work like the other boys. But continue to look at the reasons why. Why all this trouble uh, hits Joseph. Joseph told his dreams. Told his dreams first of all to his brothers. And they resented the dream. And then he told another dream to his brothers and the, and the dad. 
about the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowing down. And so it's it's kind of like Joseph is is rubbing it in. You know, Hebrews 1 tells us that in the period of time in the Old Testament, God spoke sometimes through dreams and then the interpretation of those dreams. We think of Daniel having the ability to interpret dreams. How does God speak to us today? Through His Word. If God wants to speak to somebody through a dream, He could certainly do so. But God's people today should not expect things like that as means of communication. God speaks to us through His Word. It's even dangerous to think that you've got to chase after certain miraculous kinds of revelation. We should see that we have something better today in the Scripture. Simon Peter in 2 Peter 1 said, we have a more sure word. But you know what's sad is that we don't read the Bible anymore. God speaks through the pages of the Bible, but we've got to take it up and read it. You would expect that Christians of all people would read. If we really realize that the sovereign God of the universe is speaking to His children through His Word, you would think we would pick up His Word and read it for hours every day. But we don't. Whatever your level of Bible reading, increase it. But, before I get off on that too much, let's return to thinking of all the reasons Jacob and Joseph set themselves up. I've listed uh, five or six reasons. There's one more I want to point out to you. What's one more reason why how Jacob and Joseph are setting Joseph up for trouble? There's one more thing Jacob states in the text that you want to say, Jacob, what in the world are you thinking? Send him up to Shechem to spy on his brothers. Sent, sent uh, him up to Shechem to spy on the brothers where the brothers are tending the flocks and then said, bring me a report back on them. I want you to think about that last point. When Jacob sent Joseph to go and spy on his brothers, little did Jacob know that this would be the last time for many years that he would ever see his son again. In fact, he lives all those years thinking that Joseph is dead. Maybe you know a parent who helped their child get out the door to school one morning and the next thing the parent says happened, they got a phone call and the child was dead. And maybe they think back to the last words that morning that they had with their child. I remember that happening to me over in Gastonia at my previous church. Me and another guy had gone over to Cherville 
to visit with a young lady, high school senior, that was visiting our youth group. We sat down visiting with her and her parents, and they were bragging on her. She was like the valedictorian of the class and had all these scholarships lined up. And uh, certainly a nice young lady. Well, we left that night only to find out in just a day or two that that young lady on the highway between Cherville and Gastonia was killed in an accident. She had dropped a pill in the floorboard. She was epileptic. And uh, she dropped a pill. And she'd reached down just a second to pick it up. And her car went off the edge of the road. And she jerked it back. And when she did, it flipped the car and she was killed instantly. You just never know when you talk to somebody, it might be the last time. So here's Jacob saying to Joseph, go up and see what your brothers are doing up in Shechem and bring me a report back. And little did he know that would be the last time for many, many years he would ever talk to his son again. It's interesting how Jacob was a trickster, a deceiver, and he's being deceived by his sons here in the worst kind of way. Now folks, Joseph's brothers are a picture of depravity. They are a story in contrast. On the one hand, we can understand their jealousy. But on the other hand, it is hard to imagine the level of jealousy and hatred that they had that drove them to plot his death and then to sell him into slavery. It's nothing short of brutality what they did to him. It's hard to imagine brothers doing this to a brother. But again, the hand of God is at work behind the scenes. You say, Pastor, are you saying that God was the conductor behind all of this? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. God had, remember what God had told Abraham. What had God told Abraham? They're going to be in Egypt in bondage for 400 years. So what's God doing through the Joseph narrative? He's setting it up to get them down to Egypt where they will be in captivity for 400 years. So again, is God the conductor? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no other way to be faithful to the Scripture, I don't think, than to, con than to conclude that. <clears throat> but as far as these brothers, I mean, look at what they did. They, they ripped that robe off of, of him, that, that wretched robe as they would have viewed it. You can almost feel their hatred and disdain as the Bible says they ripped that robe off of them. That, that robe that was a terrible symbol to them of their dad's love for Joseph that was greater than his love for them. The cistern they threw him into. 
was a large pit underground. Its scholars have described them kind of, some of you old timers remember back those glass milk bottles that would be delivered to your door. Uh, they would, they would dig cisterns underground, kind of shaped like that, store water in, precious water in a desert climate. And then the opening would be smaller because they would cover it so that people or animals couldn't fall into it. They would keep them covered. And, and when somebody went down in there to draw water, you, they had to be, there had to be somebody or, some kind of mechanism to lower them down so they could get back. On your own, they were impossible to get out of the way they were designed. Here was an empty cistern, no water in it. They toss him, they toss him down that. And then on top of that, what blows my mind in chapter 37 is the way when they bring this robe back to their dad, dipped in blood, and he cries and mourns the loss of Joseph, says the other kids and family members come there to try to comfort him. These boys see how their dad is so heartbroken and for years and years and years, they let him live with his heartbreak when they know Joseph wasn't torn to pieces. They know, in all probability, Joseph's still alive. And they're satisfied. What do you think about sons that are satisfied to watch their dad grieve and mourn like that? And not a single one of them ever breaks the truce they must have had with one another not to tell dad what really happened. You talk about cold and calloused. That's about as cold and calloused as it gets. Who's Joseph a type of? Christ. Joseph... 20 pieces of silver. Jesus, more than that, but still sold for pieces of silver. Hated by his brothers. Disowned by his brothers. He's a type of Christ. Probably as Jesus is walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and the Bible says he opened the Scripture to them to point out how from Moses on through the prophets, the Scripture spoke of him, I would imagine that probably the Joseph narrative was one of the stories that Jesus highlighted that pointed to him. Let me give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, children do not do themselves any favors by being tattletales. Teach your children to use restraint when it comes to tattling. Yes, tattle if something dangerous is being done or if somebody's going to get hurt in some way, but just tattling over any and every little thing just to tattle? A child's not doing themselves any favor. 
And your child or your grandchild is actually setting themselves up to be hated if they do that. Nobody likes a tattletale. Second lesson, parents, you might naturally gravitate to one of your children. Grandparents, you might naturally gravitate to one of your grandchildren. For example, let, let's say you're in the medical field. Let's say you're, you're a doctor and you have a, a child or a grandchild who wants to do something medical and he or she's such a kindred spirit with you and the other grandchild wants to be an artist. Something you, you might can't even draw a stick figure. Here's one grandchild wanting to do something medical, following your footsteps. Another one doing something you can't relate to at all. Do you have more of a kindred spirit with one of them over the other? Yeah, but you better be careful that you're not showing favoritism. That you're not setting up jealousy and resentment. Again, just like I said before, nobody likes to end up on the short end of the stick. With all your children, with all your grandkids, they have value. Value and dignity and worth created in the image of God. And God's made them all different. So just be careful. Be careful about favoritism. It's gonna, it's gonna bite somewhere along the way. Third lesson. God is working before we see it and even when we don't see it. Life is in His control. And so always seek Him and pray that your steps would be in accordance with His divine plan. And then lastly tonight, God will allow His children to suffer trials in a fallen world for various reasons. I want you to understand it is not it is not a sign of His disfavor. It's not automatically a sign of His disfavor. It, it could be a sign of His judgment or discipline. Maybe not. He might be putting some hardship on you to grow you and stretch you in a good way. It, it could be. It could be discipline. But either way, it's not a sign of God's disfavor. God might, think of the Apostle Paul, what all God allowed him, that thorn in the flesh that he had. And that thorn in the flesh that God wouldn't take away from the Apostle Paul, God had an intended purpose in it. So that Paul would see that God's grace was sufficient. The boy born blind and healed in John chapter 9. Why was he healed? They said, he sinned. He must have sinned or his parents sinned. Jesus said, no, nope, this blindness was not because he sinned or his parents sinned. This blindness was for the glory of God. So again, trials, hardships, 
It's not a sign. It's not an automatic sign of God's disfavor in your life. If you're going through something difficult, God's trying to teach you something. God's trying to teach you something. He's trying to grow you. He's building character and fortitude and endurance. It might be because He's got some bigger assignment for you. But before you can do that, He's got to get you ready for it. The God who is there, He's always there. He's always there. Any comments or questions? We're going to end there tonight. Any comments or questions? Jim? As you were going through the verses there in Jeremiah, all mm-hmm. of the impact that that should have on the abortion Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And then you think about the millions of babies that have been killed. Look at all the plans that have been destroyed. Oh, yeah. And yet God's trusted us with six Yeah. But the thing that gets me out of here is the fact that the people that want abortion on demand, who want abortion up to the day of delivery, that kind of concept, is actually flying in the face of Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. You're right. You're exactly right. Anybody? Oh, he is in the long run. Sure. Oh, yeah, it doesn't excuse them for what they did. Sure, sure, good point. But he was a tattletale. <laughs> he was a tattletale. But again, you're right, that doesn't give his brothers excuse for the brutality that they did against him. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. In this particular chapter, he keeps saying Jacob. Uh huh. But you see, Israel is referenced all the time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and actually at the beginning of the chapter, what's it say? Starts out Jacob. Saying Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Even even in the New Testament in Romans nine, how does how does Paul refer to him? 
that how's, how's God refer, how's he referred to in Romans 9? All the way that far in the future. As Israel? No. As Jacob. As Jacob. So he continues to be identified by that old name also. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, how it builds and builds and builds and finally they act out on it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and this what I'm about to say is really chasing a rabbit, bridging off of that. But all of them together, they had that anger seething. It does say something to us about mob mentalities, doesn't it? You're in a group of people that's angry about something. They feed on each other and get caught up in it. So that's a danger too. Larry. Sure. Right. And and the beautiful thing through all these characters, through all these narratives, through the Old and New Testament, it's it's a redemptive story. It's a love story of God redeeming the fallen human race. God redeeming us in spite of ourselves. <laughs> Reuben is uh, a different connection. He's going to go back and get the boy out. And he argues for not killing him. Yeah. Uh, but, so then, but then he's a scoundrel too. There's a, he's a, yes, he is different in this regard, but before this, he was also a scoundrel. You know what I'm talking about? The whole family scoundrel. Yeah. But when... when, when when Rachel died, when Rachel died and, and Bilhah was Rachel's handmaid that she gave to Jacob to raise up sons for her, when Rachel died, what did Reuben do? He went over, he, he seduced her in some way and slept with her. And in Genesis 49 and you know, in yeah, chapter forty-nine, when Jacob is giving the blessing, uh, and he's pronouncing the blessing on each of his sons, he remembers Reuben for that. What Reuben's done by sleeping with his father's concubine, and he curses Reuben for that. So, sure. And sure, in this case, he. Even the curse that, well, I'm not going to call it curse, but the 
testimony, but what Jacob said about Levi and Simeon, that Levi was going to be spread, but God chose Levi to be the priesthood. Yes. Now, the yeah. Lord works in mysterious ways. Yeah. <laughs> and Judah. From the human perspective, Jesus will be of the tribe of Judah. In the chapter before, chapter uh, 36, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter 39, next chapter is going to be Judah and Tamar. How Judah's wife dies and he, and you know, he's supposed to give one of his son who dies, the other son's supposed to raise up children for her. And and they don't. And then he says, well, wait till this other boy grows up. And she sees that he's grown up and he's not been given her as a husband. And so Judah's traveling out of town, sees her, she dresses like a prostitute, he sleeps with her. And so there Judah's impurity is contrasted with Joseph's purity because Potiphar's wife keeps trying to seduce Joseph and he refuses. And so Joseph and Judah are contrasted in, in purity sake. And then whose name ends up in the lineage? Judah. I mean, Tamar. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's... Amen. <laughs> that, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, think of who else is in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab. Rahab. And Bathsheba. Yep. Although not they, but she's there. Yep. I mean, there, there are some scoundrels in the Old Testament. And dysfunctional families. And, and I think the storyline there is, what's the storyline there? That since the fall... All of this is a picture of what? Depravity. Human depravity and need. And how God works in spite of it. I'm surprised that more movies haven't been made of some of these. Because this, this is a soap opera. You know, occasionally you'll see a movie. I'm surprised more haven't been made about these events. Yeah. 